Do you just love this podcast so much and wish you could find a way to monetarily support us? Well, guess what? Much like NPR, we thrive on support from viewers like you. So if you love this podcast and you want to become a contributor, all you have to do is go to anchor.fm. That's A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M. Click the support button and choose the amount that you want to contribute each month to our podcast. This helps keep our podcast going and it keeps the phenomenal content that you have come to know and love flowing. So yeah, what are you waiting for? Sign up today. As always, thank you so much for being a listener. We appreciate you. We see you. And we hope you enjoy the show. Spoiler alert. If you do not want this film ruined, do not proceed. There's spoilers galore. You have been warned. Welcome to Talk Classic to Me, the classic film podcast and movie club where I, Sarah Greenfield, your host and classic film enthusiast, bring in my entertaining friends to talk about classic movies or any other old-fashioned form of media that strikes my fancy. On today's show, we're talking about the film An Affair to Remember from 1957 with my lovely guest, Christina Rickert. Thank you so much for coming back to the show. We have Christina Rickert here. Thanks for having me again, Sarah. Yes, of course. (laughs) I'm so happy to have you back on the show. This week, we watched the film An Affair to Remember from 1957. It's Valentine's Day coming up, and I cannot think of a more, like, quintessential romantic film than this film. Like, before The Notebook was a big romantic comedy hit, like, this was the previous generation's The Notebook, you know? Oh, yes. Watched many a time by my yes. mother when I was growing up. Same. It is, like, the ultimate... Actually, not same. One of the reasons we're watching this, too, is that my mom's birthday is the day after Valentine's Day, and her favorite movie of all time is Sleepless in Seattle. Oh. So this is kind of an homage to my mother um, because that movie is so heavily based in the world of this movie. They reference it so often and it like caused a resurgence of this movie to become popular again. So mom, this is for you. To the moms, I love it. And happy birthday, Sarah's mom. Thanks. She'll, she's saying thank you somewhere while she's listening to this. Um, so yes, an affair to remember. Oh my God, such a classic. I was going to say, what do you think? I always ask, what do you think? But I think... You can put it out there, but I think we know what you think. Well, growing up with it, I was actually telling my husband this the other day. This was actually his first time watching it. (gasps) Really? And I can give you his little take on it later. But yeah, he, all in all, he loved it. Good. But in his terms, he was like, yeah, yeah, it was a good movie. I mean, it was better than I thought it was going to be. But no, I I love it. and, And I grew up with it constantly on in the house. So I, you know, I would have like little quotes here and there that I would remember. Um, but as a kid, you don't quite understand it I think from like a adult's perspective you know where you've had experiences with love and loss and just overall drama in your life until you reach that point in your life you don't connect to the movie as much I don't think so the reason I chose you to watch this movie with me I was saying before we started recording I feel like the movie chooses the person I watch it with because it's like I'll pick the movie and I'll be like oh who would either like this movie or who do I have like memories of this movie with and we saw this movie together a few years ago um, at, I think it was like at an anniversary screening or something. Was this uh, one that we saw at the Egyptian or am I making that up? No, we saw it at the, the Chinese theater. Cause I remember that was the first time in my life and the only time in my life I lost my parking ticket and I had to pay the full parking amount. And I was so oh embarrassed. Gosh. I was like, Christina, I, I can't I believe I remember I this. Yes. I totally remember. Yep. But we had a great time. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, we saw the anniversary showing together and we both have like a long history of loving this movie. Like I remember watching this movie a lot as a teenager, but also I was realizing while watching this movie, there has never been a time when I watched this movie fresh without knowing the ending because of Sleepless in Seattle. Like Sleepless in Seattle was played so much in my home as a kid. Like my mom bought it on VHS, we watched it all the time. So like I never went into this movie not knowing that it was going to, like I knew the end the whole time, even the first time I saw it. So, I don't know, this this time I tried to watch it kind of with new eyes, and it was so wonderful and delightful and smart. Yes, it gets a little dramatic with the whole getting hit by a car and getting paralyzed thing, but that's also kind of a fun, not fun, oh God, not fun, that's not the word to use for it. <laughs> it's of another time, and it's just like a sheer delight. That's what it is. You can't watch it without being totally charmed and then crying a little bit no matter what 
you're always gonna cry during this movie but in a good way even knowing the ending after all these years I still needed like a whole tissue box by my side while I'm watching it. Yep, it's so true. Well, and I think what's so interesting about this movie is we're going to get into the plot synopsis in a minute, but this is like almost an exact remake. So Leo McCary is the director and he made this film in 1939 and he made it with Irene Dunn and Charles Boyer and it's like almost a scene to scene remake, but this one, this one is better, I think. First of all, Deborah Carr and Cary Grant's chemistry is just insane. They have such good chemistry. And it seems to be, even though it's like scene to scene, the dialogue is wittier in this one. It does it just right this time. It feels like the first one was a very solid first take. And this is like the complete idea. You know what I mean? It was a love affair. Is that what it was called? Yes, it was. You're so smart. I did a little bit of sleuthing Googling last night because I just wanted to be prepared but I haven't, I haven't seen it, so I have nothing to compare it to. But I would assume it'd be like more toned down, maybe? Well, okay, so I have seen it. I wonder if it's because it was like around an anniversary year when we were in high school, like 2002-ish. I watched this movie a lot. I feel like it was on AMC all the time in 2002. And they also went on TCM show, they wouldn't have showed the third one because there's a 1994 remake too with uh, Warren Beatty and Annette Bening and that's how they fell in love. So even though the movie oh wasn't a hit, that's how they fell in love. <laughs> And she's like the woman that he settled down for because he famously slept with like everybody in Hollywood. So this That's movie has magic. Amazing. Yes. I did not know that. Well, now I got to watch that movie. Yep. And they're on a plane. It like starts on a plane. I remember watching the first like 20 minutes and then I had to go somewhere and do something and I never finished. So I don't know if it's good or bad, but I would be willing to watch it again. But that's romantic when you know like the, the personal story behind it. And they're still together to this day and they love each other. That being said, I remember watching the first one and I was in high school, but this is what's really funny about me. The scene with like the kids when the kids are singing. I remembered at the time liking the kids in the 1939 one better because I felt like they were more professional. Like me as like a 15 year old watching it was like, these kids are clearly singers. They sound great. This is way better. The kids in the other movie like are not professional. They are just like kids and it's not good. And so what's so hilarious is that now as an adult, I'm like, oh my God, I love that these kids are natural, that they're real kids, that they don't sound perfect. So adult me totally loves that about this movie but like 15 year old me was like I cannot handle the not professionalism of these child singers <laughs> and I remember it being like cute but this one's sexier this one has like chemistry oh, yeah. and sex it had stuff that I was like wait this is 1957 wait really it's so witty and dry that it can go over your head when you're younger but as an adult you're like wow that you're making like a very sexual remark that I'm only just now getting as an adult. I actually haven't watched this movie in a while. The last time I watched it was when we saw it in 2017. So it's been a minute for me, which is... Ditto, I think. It was like you forget something you used to know so well and you get to watch it with brand new eyes. So I loved that. For me, I, I got to watch it through Alan's eyes too for his first time. So it was like especially toward the ending too, I was watching him at that point. I was like, what's his reaction gonna be? And I could just see like his, the facial expressions he had and I'm like, oh yay, he likes it. He's getting emotional. He'd, he'd kill me if, if I told him that. And now we are gonna get into the plot synopsis. First of all, I just like telling a plot synopsis. I think it's fun. Um, mm -hmm. But it's also because some people just like to listen to the podcast and not watch the movie. So this is kind of for those people, like my mom. Um, and this is her episode, <laughs> so there you go. And a fair to remember, first of all, first of all, I made the connection that I don't know if I've made before because I can't remember if I thought this the last time I watched it, but the beginning, we open and it's a beautiful snowy shot of Central Park. And I realized, you know, this time, and I might've realized it before, I don't remember, that the beginning is the ending, right? We're watching this gorgeous snowy shot of Central Park and we're like, okay, this is pretty. And we know it's a romance because there's pink cursive and a love song in the background. The title credits are showing and it's this song. It's called An Affair to Remember, but it's like subcalled Our Love Affair. It's sung by Vic Damone. I think it kind of sounds like Embraceable You by the Gershwins, but what do I know? A lot, actually. It does sound like Embraceable You. you do. Um, so, <laughs> and I found out this time that Leo McCary uh, wrote the lyrics. He wrote them with someone else. Okay, so we have that opening scene. 
It sets us up for this romantic film. We learn exposition-wise from a news anchor who shows up later and he's like, Nikki Ferranti, famous playboy, is finally getting married. He's going to marry this woman with $600 million. Did I get that right? Was it $600 million? Yes. And we had to go back and play that again because I was like, wait, $600 million in 1957? So Alan looked it up. I don't know if you looked it I up. I didn't. Please tell me this information. That amount, it was somewhere around like 50 billion, I would <gasps> say. Oh my God. Some outrageous amount that I'm like, wait, does that amount of money exist? Holy wow. crap. You get the sense of who he is and what he's about to do. Mm-hmm. And that maybe he's not really marrying this woman for love. It might just possibly be for her money. To show how famous Nikki Ferranti is, they show us this interview in the U.S. They show it in um, Italy. And the guy goes, Mamma Mia, when he says the money amount. And then they cut to the London announcer, who's the driest guy ever. And he takes a lot of pauses. I guess that's uh, the uh, news. I will say it had um, one of the stupidest lines I've ever heard. And I wrote it down because it killed me in reference to the money. So when the American guy is talking about Nikki Ferrani getting married to this woman, he says, not only all that lettuce, but a beautiful tomato, too. And I went, oh, God. Oh, my God. So cheesy and great. Okay, so we get all these news updates. We know about Nikki Ferranti. We cut to a cruise ship. And, okay, I want to know the backstory of, like, introducing people through their legs. I feel like we see a lot of legs on stairs in this movie. And I is it just because she's paralyzed in the end? Like, I'm not totally sure what that connection is. You just blew my mind right now. I didn't even make that connection. There was one scene in particular with the legs on the stairs that really got me. Yeah, I've never made that connection between seeing all the legs we do and then the ending. Because I was noticing that, that there's a lot of, like, leg shots. And not like sexual leg shots, just they're telling a story with a lot of legs. And I I think that sometimes can tell like a more interesting story too when you're not seeing everybody's faces all the time. Oh my God. It's so much more meaningful when we get to the moment that you were just talking about, which we both get to. Okay. So um, Nikki Ferranti, there's a very loud telegram boy being like, Nikki Ferranti, Nikki Ferranti. And everyone on the boat is like, is he here? Where is he? And I'm like, dude, stop. Don't you have like any sort of like decorum or privacy for your guests? My God. Get some uh, sensitivity training or something. Like, be aware of what you're doing. So everyone knows Nikki Ferranti's on this ship. This telegram boy has loudly said that. Um, So he finds Nikki Ferranti, who is immediately, like, besieged by people who are like, can I have your autograph? Anytime someone wants something from him, he's got a witty remark to get out of it. And it leaves them confused. And I love it every time. Nikki Ferranti, he's got a phone call. It's a lady who's like, Nikki, you beast. How could you leave me when you're going to be married? And he does a classic kind of like, I can't hear you. My boat's going under a tunnel. Like he does that classic. (laughs) Oh no. But you get the sense automatically that this is a guy who, even though he's getting married, and they say the name of the woman he's supposed to marry a lot so you know that this isn't her, so that we know that like Lois is not Gabriella. And they say Gabriella's name a lot so that we get the next scene all set up. Um, but we know he truly is a playboy. He is not marrying for love. He is 100% marrying for money. He has this like way of going from woman to woman and telling them how much he loves them and like sleeping with them and moving on. They imply that he sleeps with these women for sure. Definitely. So yes, he has this conversation with Gabriella. The first time we see Deborah Carr, aka Terry McKay, which is such a good screen name and was reused in each adaptation. They always change the man's name, but they keep her name the same because it's such a good name. We see her from the back first, and she's holding the cigarette case, and Cary Grant's like, hey, that's my cigarette case. And she's like, "How? well, how do I know it's yours? And she opens it and reads the inscription. They have this, like, witty banter and witty repartee immediately. Chemistry from the get-go. They're both so smart. They're both on each other's level. They end up having dinner together. They're really fun. They get along great. The next day, they start hanging out. And um, she's telling him about herself and we learn her situation, which is they're both kind of in similar situations in that they both have secured their place in life through other people, not through their own means. Mm -hmm. So like he is supported by the wealthy women who he like has affairs with and she is supported by this man, Ken, who is essentially he has like we're going to get married one day probably, but he's she's kind of a quote unquote kept woman for him like. She's like his concubine. I mean, he's had her become cultured and he like 
buys her everything. That was the one thing I think that got me was when she said, you know, I've, I've studied and done this and that to, to become cultured. So one day I could become the perfect wife. Yes. Like, I don't know if that was her quote or Cary Grant's quote, but I, that quote. got me. I was yeah. like, mm, okay. All right. Because that was like the only way for her to, yeah. to be safe and to be on top. What really struck me this time watching the movie like from the perspective of someone in my 30s, because as someone in my 20s, I'm watching this and thinking like, oh my God, it's so romantic. I'm not picking up on these deeper things about how Deborah Carr is 36 when she makes this. And if her character is also 36, that means she's been with Ken since she was 31 and she was working in that nightclub and she doesn't have like a secure future. And so as someone who kind of woke up in their 30s and was like, oh my God, I don't really have a secure future. I've kind of been banking on the fact that like my art would take off or that I was gonna just find a way. Future Sarah would figure this out. I was watching this from her perspective of like, oh God, how do I have, how do I have security? I, you know, totally. like in financial and with money. And so I just totally got all of that. And so when they're talking about like, this is our last chance, I was like, yeah, you're right. If you take a chance on each For other sure. and you're both being totally independent and you don't know what will happen, that is a huge risk. Definitely. So that was like hitting home for me this time of like, oh girl, I get it. Right. And at that point, like that age too, him, I think probably, you know, we care less about because, you know, men, whatever, they can get married, do whatever they want, whenever. He is 53 in this, just for the record. So. Whoa. Yeah. That is yeah. much older than I thought he was in this. Right? I knew he wasn't in his 30s, but I yes. was like, maybe mid to late 40s. But You don't get too old of a vibe. They don't feel so off together. And she's very mature, and she looks kind of more mature. Especially with the hair, I think, too. I like her look a lot. She's very put together. She's so put together. One of my notes that I wrote this time is like, no matter how old I get, I will never be as refined as Deborah Carr. That is never going to happen for me. I don't think it would happen to a lot of people, especially during the pandemic right now. <laughs> In sweat clothes all the time. How she got her start essentially was playing like very proper people because she has this carriage mm -hmm. of a very proper person, but like a proper person who's fun, who's got like a little mischief in them. But yeah, just the way she holds herself. Like, I will never be sitting around in my apartment holding myself that way. She doesn't ever yeah. <laughs> slouch. And so much confidence, too. Even though, of course, the character, at least, is very insecure in her future, financially, and all that. She's a very confident woman who's very, like, very self-aware, I should say. And just able to exude confidence, but also, like, not really care too much about what other people think. Yes. I should get back to the plot synopsis. So basically, like, they've met. We learn her story. And um, also through that line, we learn that she's only really slept with the one man. She's like, I'm an open book. And he's like, well, then turn the page. And she's like, there's only one page. And I went, oh my God. Because before I was like, that meant, in my brain, younger, that meant like, we're not talking about me anymore. But this time I was like, oh, they're talking about sex. And she's talking about having only slept with one man. Got it now. Okay, I understand. But again, such coded language. This is yeah. during production code and it made its way in because it's just nuanced enough, you know? I recognized too when they were talking about her like uh, nightclub days and yes. she was like, well, you know, the, and the owner would chase me around between, what was it, four and five a.m. Three and after four. Closed, or three and four, whatever it was. We said, did he ever catch you? And she goes, no. That's a little messed up. It's, yeah. Harassment was part of her job. Like that right? was part of her life. No one wants that. Oh, I was thinking about that when she went back to that job too. And I was like, is someone still chasing you around from 3 to 4 a.m.? I hope not. Okay, so they, um, they're together and she's kind of realizing someone takes a photo of them. And she's like, oh my God, I can't hang out with you because if we hang out, there's going to be news and there's clearly chemistry between us. I don't really want this to get out. So they agree to stay apart from each other, but they keep bumping into each other through random circumstances and the photographer gets it every time. So it looks like they were together the whole time. I will say her bathing suit was absolutely adorable in the swimming scene. I was like, can I purchase it? It was like a little swimming dress. It was so adorable. Well, Alan made a comment like, that swimsuit has a skirt on it. I was like, but it's adorable. I would wear that. I would rock the crap out of that. Also, how can he not see someone's in the pool when he just like dives in is my other question. She's wearing a bright, yellow swimsuit but whatever it's fine <laughs> they want to be together they can't really there's this super awkward scene where they're trying not to be together and it's on the two sides of the booth where he's sitting alone on one side of the booth and she's sitting alone on the other side i get so embarrassed for them every single time and everyone at the restaurant's staring at them when they're like you know trying to hide that they're trying to have a conversation while they're back to back i thought it was just adorable i get that they're embarrassed i get it but i'm like oh my god hilarious 
Yeah, I just like feel the embarrassment for them. It's like, just sit together. It'll be less awkward if you just sit together. Own it. Also, no one cares. Nobody right? cares. Which they realize by the end. The next day, the ship is pulling into a port. They're in France somewhere. And Nikki is like, I'm going to go meet a woman. She says something like, ah, you've got one at every port, eh? And he's like, well, this one's my grandmother. And she's like, well, I'd like to see that. And he's like, well, you can. Do you want to come meet my grandma? And she's (laughs) like, okay, sure. So this is when I think they really fall in love. And they think it too, because they do say it later. He takes her to meet his grandmother, who's just the loveliest little old lady. She lives in this villa. At first I thought it was Italy, because I was like, what is this gorgeous Mediterranean hillside looking thing? Because it reminded me of like Cinque Terre or Sorrento or something like that. And then I'm like, oh, wait, they're speaking French. Never mind. He speaks terrible French, by the way. If you were brought up on French and that's your French, dude, work on your French. So he meets his grandma, (laughs) Genou. Their relationship together is beyond adorable because we've seen him and the way he is with like women in a sexual way of like dismissive of them. But he loves his grandmother and she loves him. And they have this genuine connection that's so sweet. They hug each other so tightly and just love each other. You get this genuine sense of affection. And she's someone who really understands and sees Nikki for exactly who he is. Like she can kind of just see through all the bullshit. She immediately likes Deborah Carr because how could you not? They get along great. And she has this conversation with her about Nikki. And she's like, he's always so scared of not being good at things. She shows Deborah Carr the paintings and says, Nikki did this, isn't it beautiful? He's too scared to pursue this. He doesn't want to be bad at something and he doesn't want people to see him make a mistake. And I totally got all of that. He really cares about what society thinks of him. He does sound like he's really stuck in kind of like boyhood, essentially, you know, just scared of what other people think, scared to get too intimate or too deep with anybody. It really shows. So we get that insight into him. We have this beautiful moment of them playing the piano together. What I think is so interesting about this movie too is there's a lot of like themes that appear throughout. One of them is memories. It's constantly kind of mentioned throughout and they play the love affair song four times in this film, which is a lot for a movie. It's like that song becomes this lingering memory throughout. I just thought it was so fascinating what I was noticing this time. So um, they have this beautiful moment where he has his grandmother play the piano for Deborah Carr, and she used to be a concert pianist. Oh, and they explained why they lived there. Because I was like, excuse me, hold the phone. He's British, but you speak French, and your accent is from all over the place, and you live in this, how did you end up here? They gave us exposition, so I was not concerned. They're like, my husband was a diplomat. We lived all over the place. We love this place the best. We retired here. And I went, okay, phew. We've got your backstory. <laughs> so it gets confusing. Thank God. Otherwise, I would have been sitting there going like, why do you speak this way? Because her accent is so weird. She has like, I am vaguely from Europe, kind of. What? It was just a funny <laughs> accent. Um, I love that they keep everything based in reality so that it's not just like this movie musical moment, but Deborah Carr picks up the sheet yes. music, looks at it, can sight read in French, which is incredibly impressive. She hears the song once through and then on the second time through joins in with singing. She's humming, and if you look at Cary Grant's face when she is humming, before she even starts singing, oh my god, I hadn't ever noticed it before. You literally watch him fall in love with her in that moment. Like, he loves her so much. Oh my god. Okay, so, she sings this beautiful song. I love that they never finish the song. The Mm -hmm. bells toll. It's very realistic. It just ends, and they have to get back to the ship. And Janu is like, oh, I hate ship whistles. Their time together is over, and it was this beautiful, magical time. Um, Deborah Carr wants to go to the chapel. This is when she goes to the chapel, right? Or did she go to the chapel earlier? So when they first get there, Deborah Carr goes into the chapel um, that they have and kind of kneels and looks up and is in front of this beautiful, like, Virgin Mary statue. And it's this moment when Cary Grant sees her and just starts to really like love this deeper presence about her. Um, And he later paints it. It's like the famous painting he makes in the end of the film. When you see like her reaction to getting the gift from Cary Grant and it's her husband, like the beautiful portrait. And that's when we know that he's more thoughtful too. Yeah. Because that's like, first of all, that's when we learn that he paints beautifully from memory. Like he actually paints better from how he feels and from his memory. Um, Because he barely sees Deborah Carr in that chapel and paints that beautiful picture of her just based on how he felt and his memory. Mm -hmm. So that's what we learn from that. And then just the thoughtfulness of that gift. Because he's like, I didn't buy you anything. I made this for you. And it's like the most meaningful thing I could possibly make. You loved my grandfather so much. And it's this like heartfelt, beautiful picture of him. 
And what I noticed this time is I was thinking she was sitting in his chair. So in my brain, I was like the chair she was sitting in, that red chair. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh God, I bet that was her husband's chair. And now it's her chair. As they're leaving, Janu fully supports this Deborah Carr, Cary Grant union. Deborah Carr's like, your shawl is beautiful. And <laughs> and Janu is like, well, when I die, I'll send it to you. So there you go. And she clearly wants them to be together. She sees that like they bring out good in each other. And she you get the sense she doesn't really want him to go marry this other woman for money. So they part. We kind of sense this might be the last time they see each other because she is 82. That's rather old in 1957. And now, but like in 1957, that was a feat. So they go back to the ship. Things have changed. They are fully in love now. They cannot deny this. They're trying to come up with a way that they can be together. And one of the best scenes, I'm going to say one of the most romantic scenes in cinema ever, is their first kiss, which we don't even see on camera. <sighs> that That's what oh, got me. That's God. what I was saying earlier yep. about. Oh, I knew. Yep. I was like, I know the exact oh. part you're talking about. So they're like having this conversation on the, the ship's deck and like, you know, they're falling in love. He leans in to kiss her and she's like, no. And they start to head down the stairs and they stop partway down the stairs. And he goes further down than she does. And he looks back. He sees something in her face, which we're not seeing. And he like climbs the stairs to kiss her. And we know they're kissing based on their foot position. And we know they're kissing because her hand is on the rail and it leaves the rail. And you know that she's like touching his face and then it comes back down and you're like, oh my God, that was hot. It gave me chills. I was like, this is so romantic because you say so much without saying too much. You see so little. Yes, it was like kept intimate for them. It was their private moment. Part of me wonders what they were really doing off camera. Like making funny faces at each other. Yes, <laughs> I wonder that. But it's just so, oh, it's so beautiful. That moment is only meant for them, not even the audience. That's what's so special about it. Um, so that was great. They end up coming up with this plan. They're both going to come up with money on their own. He wants to sell a painting, and she's going to go back to the nightclub, and they're going to work. And then six months later, they're going to meet on the top of the Empire State Building, and they're just going to be together. And she's like, but we should come up with a plan. Like, what if something happens? And he's like, no, <laughs> we're both going to be there. And I was like, you could have come up with a plan. It would have been so fine. So impractical. Like, you know, try to reach me at this number. Hey. Also, they have a great kiss there, too, because it's like a shorter kiss, but it feels like such an improvised kiss and so passionate. And the other great part, too, that I totally forgot to mention earlier is Terry McKay does this thing where she'll go, oh, did you say something? in the middle of what she's saying. And the first time yes. you get the sense that it's because she doesn't want to talk about what she's supposed to be talking about. Like he asks about her and they're talking and she goes, oh, what did you, what did you say? Deflecting. <laughs> and it feels so natural. Like it feels so like a real moment, not like a movie moment. And then um, she does it again later, but this time she answers herself. So she says, oh, what did you say? And he's like, I didn't say anything. And she's like, no, I think you said. She like puts the words in his mouth for him. And I just love that. And it's funny because um, Leo McCary is actually known for like having his actors improvise. So I cannot help but wonder oh. how much was improvised. Um, Bing Crosby yeah. once said like 75% of going my way was improvised. Like Leo McCary Ooh. would be like, okay, so let's try this. So they each go their separate ways. She goes to her nightclub act. She's also not Irish. She's Scottish, which I think is fascinating. You're playing like a redheaded Irish woman who is like doing this Irish act in her club. We see her sing. That's really Deborah Carr's voice. Is it? It is, because in The King and I, they dub her with Marnie Nixon. I thought this one was dubbed with Marnie Nixon too. It's totally Deborah Carr. Because oh I, I have an unpopular opinion about their use of Marnie Nixon in the studios. Marnie Nixon does have a beautiful voice, but the problem is... They don't try to it's voice everywhere. match her. Yeah. So yeah. it's like Natalie Wood speaks and then Marnie Nixon sings and you're like, they don't even sound remotely the same at all. Totally. Same with My Fair Lady. You're like, could you not have sound matched? I'm sure you could have found a singer that sounded like the person. So no dish to Marnie Nixon. Her voice is beautiful. It's just like, I don't love that they didn't even try to sound match anybody ever. Yeah. <laughs> they were just yeah. like, and Marnie Nixon will sing for you now. And all of these recordings will sound the same. And she's not going to sound like the speaking person at all. Mm -hmm. And I do know that Audrey Hepburn was pissed about that. And she purposely kind of messes up the lip syncing on My Fair Lady. If you watch mm -hmm. her, she gets, you can visibly see that she's pissed. <laughs> I think. Oh my God. Because she wanted to use her own voice. And she does use her own voice for parts of it. But then when it flips into Marnie Nixon... 
It's almost like she's like, I'm not even trying. Anyway, go take a look at that. That's my favorite lady. Check it out. So she does her nightclub act. He tries to sell his paintings. Also, he's like, it's been three months. Why have none of my paintings sold? And I'm like, okay, sir, three months. I know plenty of artists who were like still years later trying to get paintings sold. Like it takes time. And I like that that's what the guy says to him too. He's like, hey, it's been three months, dude. It's fine. Calm down. He's like, I have a tight deadline to get married in six months. Um, And so the guy's like, don't worry, we'll get you another painting gig. And I like that he ends up painting billboards. And what I noticed this time, I think I actually had noticed this before, but he's painting a billboard for beer. And earlier in the film, when they're talking about like, we both like the finer things, we both like pink champagne, could you drink beer? And he's like, I'll try it. So he's painting the billboard for beer. It's great, great tie-in. Um, he does sell a painting. He does, for $200 he yes. sells a painting without putting his famous name on it. That's the other caveat. He doesn't want to put his famous name on things. Which I think is totally respectable, honestly. He wants to make it on his own. I get that, but then there's also part of me that's like, in the film Creed, as we all know, Michael B. Jordan's character wants to use his last name Johnson, which was his mother's name, and Tessa Thompson's like, but you are a Creed. Like, he is your dad. Don't feel bad using that name. It is your name. Own your identity. But I get it. He wants to do it separately. I totally get that. But eventually, I think he should paint under his own name because it is his name. Who's he going to fool in the future, too? If he's, like, literally got his own gallery set up at one point, people are going to know who you are. You make a great point. The journalists would find out. With all their paparazziing. Unless he wears a silly disguise, which I would actually watch that movie. Oh my God, please make that a movie. <laughs> Cary Grant going to work in his silly disguise and her like getting well again. Oh my God, I would love it. His glasses with a fake nose and mustache. Which is funny because those are Groucho Marx glasses and Leo McCary, the director, directed Duck Soup. It's a full circle moment. She breaks up with Ken and Ken's like, I'm sorry, I should have asked you to marry me earlier. Also, Ken is kind of hot. I'm going to say that. Ken's pretty attractive. He is. And, and by the way, she breaks up with him like the same day that she gets back. And he breaks up with his girl too, same day. They were on it. I thought he dragged it on a little more, no? Maybe not. No, because he does the television interview and he's like not complying with what she wants. And so you get the sense that it's like that day that it's going to go down. They both do it right away. And it's like him showing her that he's like breaking up with her basically on television that gives her the confidence yeah. of like, yes, this is real. Yes, I'm going to break up with my husband. It's happening. Or my, my fiance. Yeah. Um, so they have their very sweet breakup. Poor Ken, um, though. I, poor Ken, but also not poor Ken. Because it's like, Why? well, because he like, first of all, I feel like he throws negative shit in almost immediately every time. He'll be like, did you cheat on me with him? No, I withdraw that remark. Just kidding. I, you did cheat on me, didn't you? Yes, that is true. He was vaguely a little controlling and he always kind of would throw the negative spin into things. So I was like, oh, you're a little passive aggressive, Ken. But I mean, how would you feel if you were in his shoes, though, too? Like, I'd be a little snippy. I'd be like, where the hell is this coming from? You just come back from a boat ride and you're breaking up with me? What's going on? Five years together? In the 50s, he was sleeping with her and not married to her. And now that's not a big deal. But in the 50s, that's a big deal. They are not engaged. He never proposed to her. Yeah, and he's like, you know, I was going to ask you to marry me. And she's like, it's too late, dude. It's too late. Five years, like back then, especially like you were saying, that's a long time to just be with somebody yes. and not be engaged. Yes. Well, and to be sleeping with them, which again, I, I don't think is a big deal. Like I'm, I'm sex positive. Do what you want to do with your body. But um, it's putting her in a precarious situation. And I felt like this time watching it, thinking of her more as like, she is kind of a kept woman and he has kept her. And so that was kind of becoming clear to me. It's not an equal relationship. Yes, yes. She's almost kind of maybe his property in his eyes. Ooh. He's a sweet guy, but I just, that was hitting me this time more heavily. Yeah. They're going to go meet on the top of the Empire State Building, and she bumps into Ken right before because she goes to this old dress shop she used to love and buys a dress, and the dress shop calls Ken and is like, can she pay for this dress? Also, she's here. <laughs> so just, ugh. God, I'd be so pissed off. You call my ex to see if I have good credit? Screw you. She's like, I'm paying in cash. Thank you. It was a very pretty woman kind of moment. I was I was literally just going to say that. Like, yes, I can pay for this. Big mistake. Huge. Um, Ken's around, essentially. She's about to head up to the Empire State for their big date. And she gets hit by a taxi off screen. And at first, we don't know that she's hit by a taxi. We hear a taxi crash noise and like an ah. And then we see a bunch of people running. And mm -hmm. I kind of was like, well, Cary Grant, 
he's by the elevator so he can't see but if he had been looking over the edge he would have seen all the people running and that there was an accident and he would have seen the ambulance because we hear the ambulance in the background we know as the audience we know miss terry mckay she was hit by a taxi and is paralyzed she won't let anybody tell nikki Nikki thinks he has been stood up. He becomes very bitter. If you want a plot synopsis of this last bit, just go turn on Sleepless in Seattle right now and go watch Rita Wilson <laughs> deliver. Yes. Oh, my favorite. Movie. It's so good. My favorite her description. Another six months pass. She does not want to go back to Ken. She becomes a teacher, a music teacher. She has this very adorable class that is integrated, by the way. Because yes. I was noting, like, there's not really people of color in this film. Um, mm-hmm. I was glad that she did not, like, she had a white maid at least, so it wasn't like a disparaging um, stereotype kind of thing happening there. Mm-hmm. But the other thing I was noticing in the class is that, like, there looked like kids there that were not white, but it seemed like only the white kids had solos. That is what Alan and I pointed out last night, too. I was like, oh, yay, it's an integrated class, but, oh, wait, who's who's got the solos? There's the, the part, though, where two of the African-American kids step down and they have a little dance scene. Which also felt kind of racist. But yes, exactly. I was like, I'm a little conflicted. Like they get their moment in front of the class, but... Maybe this is reading too much into it, but I was like, really, did you just do that? They're singing a song about their conscience and they pan to the, like, the black kids when they say like, you're on the mean side. And I was like, did you really? See, I didn't even understand the lyrics. <laughs> like, I was turning to Alan throughout it. Like, wait, what does this song mean? I don't understand the song at all. So I, that part was totally over my head. Well, it's also a weird thing because it almost feels like it's going to be religious. You're like, is this a song about God? And then they're like, it's your conscience. You know, so you're like, what the yep. fuck is this? He knows you inside <laughs> out. Also, I should mention, Leo McCary was like a devout Catholic. So Catholicism is like featured in certain yes. of his films. It is a theme. Those were some things that I noticed about that. Because I I was like, am I reading too much into this? It's great that the class is integrated, but I did think that was kind of messed up. Yeah. And the kids were adorable. It was super cute. But oh my God, it went on forever. I do like that they feel like real kids. I really do like that. The song is quite long. It could be shortened. But I didn't care this time. And it's probably because I like know the song now because I've seen this movie so many times. I sang through both Tomorrowland and this one. And Tomorrowland, I got choked up, especially when she was singing it in her club. And she was so hopeful and so happy. So yeah, we've got the kids. They're dancing. And the one night she goes out and does something, they go to the ballet, which was not the Nutcracker, by the way, which was weird because they mentioned that it's Christmas. And I'm like, so wait, you went to the ballet and it was not the Nutcracker? I've never thought about that before. So they go to the ballet and of course Nikki is there and he sees her going out. He's there with Lois and they're both kind of like begrudgingly with their exes, like not totally together. Although he's thinking about getting back together with his ex. I'll settle for this $600 million lady. He's having a hard time. Janu passed away. And we know that he's made some paintings, the painting of Terry in the chapel. But we don't see this at all. We don't see the image until the very end, which I think is really cool. No, they show it to us. They just flip it. It's really fast. He like turns it for a second. You get the quickest understanding of what it is, but it's really fast. They don't showcase it. Because I was, I was checking for it this time and I was like, oh, that's really smart that they did that. Does he have his own gallery, by the way? Or is this just like where he... I think he... that was just like his agent friend. He somehow, through his goings-on in life, has like a painting agent friend, which is very convenient. And him complaining about three months. Come on. (laughs) He finds out where she lives because after this moment that they have together at the ballet when they kind of bump into each other, he realizes he can't go back to his former life. She's more in love with him than ever. Well, and she says, like, the next time I see him, I want to be able to walk to him or run into his arms. Like, oh my God, okay. And you're like, it's beautiful, but also we are so different. I am, I'm not... Like she is. It wouldn't be a movie if it was me. She's like, I'm on a budget saving up to like help myself. And I thought that was great and independent. But yeah, I felt like let him make the decision, you know? Yeah, withholding that like life changing information from him. Meanwhile, kind of like almost expecting him to like still be there when you're healed. Come on. He's got a life of his own too. Yes, it is honorable. But it's also like, yeah, but he needs to be in on the decision. You can't just like make the decision for him. But maybe she's actually also secretly afraid and she just doesn't tell us that on camera. Right? Maybe like, oh, he'll reject me because I'm now paralyzed. Exactly. Exactly. So we get to the big, big final scene, which is like just so good and so epic. 
we see Terry McKay in her first floor apartment that still has steps, which has bothered me since high school. <laughs> Could they not have made a wheelchair accessible set? What the hell? Honestly, to this day, nothing is ADA compliant in New York City. Really? Because those, those buildings were built years and years ago before ADA was like a thing. I think it's like any building after 1970 something has to be ADA compliant. Oh. So for her, I can imagine a woman living in New York City in 1957. You're not going to have any freaking ramps anywhere. Because I was like, even in her own apartment, there are steps. Yeah. I felt yeah. just so bad. I was like, that's not okay. So Cary Grant has found her through the phone book. Which is always my fear. I don't like people to know where I live. That would terrify me if someone could just show up at my house. Well, it's a good thing that we don't use phone books anymore. True. So true. Because <laughs> um, they can't find you any other way. I'm just kidding. True. Ah! I've seen you. It's They can take a picture of wherever I am. Oh, my I'm like, God. Oh. Right? Yeah. Okay. Anyway, so he, he finds her and he brings her Janu's shawl. Because Janu brings them together, even in death. Yes. Um, and oh, that part where she's like, I wondered why my letters had come back. Because mm-hmm. she died. And so she did send the letters. Like she said she was going to do, which I just love. Because you deeply felt like that was an experience for her. That changed her. Yeah. She loved Janu in just those brief moments. And Janu loved her back. And you you know that she's like, oh, they must have come back because Janu found out what happened and doesn't like me. But no, it's just because she passed away. She gets Janu's shawl and they have this exchange. And as Rita Wilson puts it, he's very bitter. I feel like his whole intention of going there, from my perspective, was to reprimand her and be like, you didn't show up and that was really shitty and F you, I'm gonna go move to wherever. I don't know, he was getting on a boat that evening or something. And yeah, it was kind of like a big F you to her and then everything changes and it just snowballs. See, I think it was a mix because I think he was never gonna see her again, but then that moment at the ballet happened where they connected, the hello, hello, and all I could say was hello moment. I think they so deeply connected in that moment that he was like, oh, I can't go back to my old way of being. I need closure on this. He's like, I'm leaving tonight. I got to find out what's going on here. Plus, I did promise Janu that I would bring her, you know, the lace that Janu wanted her to have. So I think it was just a mix of all those things. And I think it's just so interesting. He's so like, I want you to say you were wrong. I want to know the reason. guns blazing. Tell me why. And you rarely get closure like that, I feel. One person obviously just doesn't want it more than the other person. And this was just totally different and ends up amazing. Yeah. So yeah, she doesn't get up to greet him. She's sitting on the couch. All the cues are there. He hasn't picked up on them yet. So um, he enters the apartment as someone's leaving. So she doesn't have to get up and answer the door or anything. It explains all of it, right? So he comes in. He pulls the old, like, I'm sorry I didn't show up that day at the Empire State Building. And she's like, oh, you you didn't? And then he's doing the thing that she had done earlier, where he, like, ends up describing what it was like waiting for her for seven hours and her not showing up. And she being like, well, I remember that I said if one of us didn't show up, it would be for a darn good reason. And he's like, well, what was the reason? And she's like, well, I'm not going to tell you. And he's like, I... (laughs) what tell me (laughs) and so as he's leaving she puts on the shawl of janu over her head and he's like i painted you that way once in the chapel corbet said it was one corbet is the manager he said it was one of my best paintings but you know a woman came in and she appreciated it the way i thought that you would and he wouldn't let her pay for it and then you see his epiphany he's like because she was poor and she was in a (gasps) He doesn't say wheelchair, but he like realizes like, oh my God, whoa, hold on. This could be what happened. Mm-hmm. So as Rita Wilson puts it, he runs to the bedroom. <laughs> he opens the door <laughs> and he sees the painting on the wall and we see it as the audience through a mirror and we know it's the painting and he knows that she is paralyzed and he runs back to her and he's like, why didn't you tell me? And, <laughs> and then she says the most passive aggressive thing ever, which is if you can paint, I can walk. And like, yes. Oh God. He's that bad at painting. <laughs> right. These are two very different uh, skill sets. But you know that they're going to end up together and they kiss and they hug and it's so sweet and beautiful. And you really do have hope that she will walk again. And you really do have hope that they're going to make it together. And I don't think that they're poor because I have a feeling Janu left him her place, her villa. So it's like step one, they could totally just move to that villa. Step two, they could sell, like I'm sure he ended up with some money that they can live off of. I love that they 
they wanted to separate for the six months to kind of better themselves and like become independent on their own with like a little bit of a a nest egg so that they could then come together and start a really good life together. I I thought that was totally honorable. Oh, it's it's a very mature thing to do. It was like both of them taking ownership of their lives. I'm glad it wasn't one-sided too. Same. In in the 50s, it could have been like, oh, honey, I'll go and I'll go earn all the dough and you, you stay home and do whatever you... Like, no, it was very much like we are partners yes like we are going to be partners in the future so we need to first get our lives together separately and then we can come together and just enjoy it I've noticed as a woman there are certain films that I'm more drawn to and I'm realizing now it's films that have like very I want to say strong women but it's like women who are independent and confident and sure of themselves and I bet you that's why we as women love this as a viewership because of what you just said they're coming at it as partners as equal partners together they are going to form a relationship that involves both of them and it's not just like one person controlling another person and so I bet you that's part of the romance too they have this insane chemistry together but it's also the coming together of equals by the way like one thing that was recurring for me was like what you say when you give your vows in sickness and in health and i'm like okay i know they're not married yet but like she's sick she she didn't give him the opportunity in the six months i guess that had transpired since she got hit by the car like she had so many opportunities probably to contact him and let him know what happened to her so that he could i guess deal with that news and probably help her deal with it too but she didn't give him that opportunity and i think hopefully she would have learned from that because that's not how you build a relationship with someone else. Well, and we had mentioned too, just like the not sure how he would react thing because they're not married and, you know, I get it. But when you see them together, it's like, of course they're going to be together forever now. And again, the full circle of like, it's snowy in New York. That's the end. Mm -hmm. And then we know that's the beginning too. The opening shots of the movie, the beginning is the end. I love it. We're not really going to talk about Cary Grant too much today because we got together to talk about Arsenic and Old Lace. We talked about Cary Grant mm-hmm. there. Oh, fantastic. I, fantastic. And I personally know that we're talking about Cary Grant in like two weeks. So like oh. I'm doing another movie that he's in. So I'm like, well, we're going to be talking a lot about Cary Grant. So we'll I do don't that know if time. this is something that you're prepared to discuss, but the pink champagne. What was up with the pink champagne? I'm like, is that really a status symbol or like was it at the time? I don't know. I think it was just like a fancy way of drinking champagne. And it's so funny because as a young person, I was like, well, someday I'm obviously going to grow up and drink pink champagne. Like this is going to be a part of my life. And oh, fun fact. Hey, guests at home, my friend (laughs) Ashley that was on the podcast a couple weeks ago, in college, she she's a chef and she made this like stunning gourmet dinner for a bunch of us one night because she's just lovely. And she served us pink champagne. And it was so good. And I told her how much I loved it and how much it meant to me. And like, oh my God, this isn't a fair to remember. And then when I was in a show (laughs) the next year, she came to the show and brought me that same bottle of pink champagne. And it was the sweetest. It was like just the sweetest gift. And she did my eye makeup because she also worked at Bobby Brown for a spell. So she did did my eye makeup really cute and was like, also have this pink champagne. And I was like, you're a really good friend. So anyway, um, pink champagne is delicious. I guess I just never have heard that like pink champagne was like a status symbol or whatever in the 50s. To me, I was taking out of it that it's just like an expensive, whimsical thing. They were just obsessed with it, though. And they didn't even finish their drinks. They order it and then leave it. And by the way, the champagne is poured in martini glasses. All the bubbles, whatever. I thought that was distracting as well. And then when she puts it behind her ears, I was like, was that a thing? Like, oh, now you just put a bunch of sticky crap behind your ears. Welcome those mosquitoes. The bees are going to get you. Well, they have to leave because the gossips are listening in and they can't have a private conversation. And she flicks the champagne at her. I loved that. Yeah, thanks for bringing up the pink champagne. Like, now I guess I gotta go buy a bottle. I think they needed a drink that was, like, antithetical to beer. So it's like, what's the opposite of beer? Pink champagne. So this screenplay, it was written by Leo McCary as well, but, like, the original screenplay was written by Delmar Daves and Don... I think that's how you say it. Daves, but it could be Davies, I don't know. And Donald Ogden Stewart. So they wrote the original screenplay... And they wrote a bunch of, like, um, just comedies in the late 30s and 40s. I don't know that they worked together a lot, but they wrote... um, Delmar Dave's actually directed 310 to Yuma, which is a hard write. Um, But he wrote (laughs) Flirtation Walk, 
The Petrified Forest, You Were Never Lovelier, and Dark Passage, which I really enjoy. That's a Humphrey Bogart, Lauren Bacall movie. And then um, Donald Ogden Stewart wrote The Philadelphia Story, Holiday, uh, Marie Antoinette, and Keeper of the Flame. So they have this kind of like comedic background, plus Leo McCary, who also has a comedic background. Leo McCary is the director. His whole story is basically like he grew up in L.A., didn't totally know what he wanted to do with his life, graduated from law school. He kind of fell into filmmaking, like a friend of a friend got him involved on a set. He did so many odd jobs, but he was really good at putting like comedy stuff together and writing for comedians. And he actually paired Laurel and Hardy together. Oh my gosh. And he kind of helped them come up with their personas and like wrote for them. Ended up only getting credit for directing three of their shorts, but like, yeah, he was integral in creating Laurel and Hardy. He ended up getting into directing. He does a lot of comedies in the early 30s with Mae West. He works with W.C. Fields, works with Gloria Swanson. And then he does Duck Soup with the Marx Brothers, which to me is like probably one of the greatest comedies of all time ever. I love Duck Soup so, so, so much. Um, We'll probably end up doing it on this podcast at some point. He eventually hits his stride with The Awful Truth. That's when he's first paired with Cary Grant. And that movie changes Cary Grant's career. Because up till that point, Cary Grant had been doing like leading man roles. And this like got him into the comedy world and showcased how good he was at doing comedy. And apparently Cary Grant was mimicking real life Leo McCary when he was doing comedy. And I kind of love that, that it was like the symbiotic thing. Because apparently Leo McCary was a very handsome man and like had these certain things that he would do. And so Cary Grant just like copied that. And that's where his comedy stuff came from. So yeah, he like comes up doing comedy. He eventually does this movie called Make Way for Tomorrow that's not really a comedy. It's like about two elderly people during the Great Depression whose families won't really take them in. They have to like go on opposite sides of the country. I've never seen it, but it reminded me of um, Love is Strange, that movie that came out about the gay couple. They get married and they have, because he, the one works at a Catholic school, they have to like separate. Oh, it's so sad. Oh, it's like a really good movie, but it's like heartbreaking. <laughs> But anyway, that kind of slowed his career down for a second. Uh, he does screwball comedies. Eventually, he wins an Academy Award for The Awful Truth. Yeah, that's his first, like, directing Academy Award. Devout Roman Catholic. He was a friendly witness for the House of Un-American Activities Committee. And I'm always disappointed when I read that about people because a lot of people mm-hmm. were. And you're like, ah, oh, bummer. The quote about him is he represents a principle of improvisation in the history of American film. And then Bing Crosby had said, I think probably 75% of each day's shooting was made up on the set by Leo. That's what Bing Crosby said about Going My Way. His big movies are Duck Soup, The Awful Truth. Unaffair to Remember. Going My Way. He does The Bells of St. Mary's. You can very much see the Catholic themes. He does Rally Around the Flag Boys with Paul Newman, which you know I adore. That's kind of Leo McCary in a nutshell. He kind of goes out of fashion for a bit. This movie did bring him back into popularity, though. He hadn't worked for a few years. And then Rally Around the Flag Boys was after this. And then he does one more film, but he kind of fades away. And then we haven't talked about Deborah Carr, really. And I wanted to just mention her. What did they say in Sleepless in Seattle? They're like, Care? Car? Kerr? Yeah. Like, how do you pronounce it? Is it Car? Is it Kerr? And at the same time, they go like, Car? Kerr? So you never know. (laughs) So apparently she used to say, it's Car, like a car that you drive. But then Louis B. Mayer was like, no, no, no. This is how we're going to bill you. It's Car as in star. So that's how it's pronounced. It's Deborah Carr. She's Scottish. She had like a whole career. So she was going to be a ballet dancer and like was in the Cour de Ballet for a showing of Prometheus and then she was like you know what no I'm changing careers her aunt was a theater teacher at like a school in Bristol so she like learned drama from her aunt got bit parts in Shakespeare in the park like at the at Regent's Park um and eventually just kind of worked her way up to doing theater she did a ton of British film before coming to Hollywood and she was kind of known for being very proper and put together that was kind of her mo and then her whole career changes um when she does From Here to Eternity. That's such a sexy movie. Her scene with Burt Lancaster on the beach when they're making out with the waves splashing around them is completely iconic. So that changes her image a bit and opens up roles for her and really just like kicks the door down on her career. Like all of her big hits come after that film. She was nominated for six Oscars and never won, but she was given an honorary Oscar. She held the record, I think, for most actress nominations for an Oscar and never winning. Was her honorary Oscar given to her posthumously? No, it was a Lifetime Achievement Award from like 1994. Okay, good. I was like, because to get it when you're dead, come on. She was elderly. She was alive. But she ends up going on to do The King and I. 
she does this movie called Tea and Sympathy, The Sundowners, The Innocents, Separate Tables, and then she had done Black Narcissus. So those are kind of her big films. You can tell she used to be a ballerina. She seems so graceful to me. She has those teeny tiny ballerina arms. A great quote about her was, she has the rare gift of thinking her lines, not merely remembering them. She does feel very natural. She feels like she's making it up as she goes, which is all you can really ask of an actor. She's very witty. And every time she does that, wait, what'd you say? You're always like, wait, did she really not hear? Like, there's a part of you that's like, that was so real. I loved it. I also wrote down, um, I love the color palette of this film. I think it just looks lush and gorgeous. And she is one of the only women I've seen that can pull off orange. She can pull off the color orange. Yep. That was one of my notes that I wrote to myself. She's just so beautiful. She's so beautiful. One of my favorite quotes that just made me want to like ball was when they're making their plan to meet each other in six months time. And they're both like, we'll, we'll go off, we'll make our money, then we'll come back together. It'll be great. Cary Grant says, I just want to be worthy of asking you to marry me. And I was like, oh my God. Yes. Yeah. That is the kind of person, that's the kind of partner you want to find in your life, you know, and it, not just have it be one-sided either though. Cause I feel like they both were making this effort to become worthy of marrying one another, you know, and setting up this life together. I just, ugh, I just thought that was beautiful. Yeah. Let me see. Oh, I wrote to, the things I was talking about earlier where I was like, there's themes throughout. I feel like it was books, purses, and memories. So I'd mentioned they play that song four times throughout the film. The last time, it's just like an echo. And I love that. And I was like, oh my God, it's the memory. Because he's walking around Janu's place and hearing the song, how he would have heard it. Ugh. And he like fondles Janu's chair. And you're like, okay. And then he like won't even look at her chair. But then he's like, just kidding. I must touch Deborah Carr's chair. That was a weird part to it me. Was weird. I was like, what are you doing with your hand on the cushion? They had to show us how he really felt. And they were like, this is the perfect way to do it. Some chair fondling. But yeah, I love that with the music, how that also plays a role and how the music is always naturally introduced and always feels, um, they want you to know that this is not a musical. Like you are in real life and this is a real place. And then um, even the Tomorrowland song is repeated. So it's like sung by her at the club when she's so hopeful. And then it's sung by the children on the Christmas Eve concert. Yes. A lot of echoing, a lot of callbacks, I guess. Especially we have with the dropping of the purse. They do that a couple times. The books. There's always like the book being handed off. They've got some repeats for sure. And then everything always appears as an image in the background through a reflection. So when she sees the Empire State Building from her balcony ah, we yes. see it in the reflection of the window yeah and then I when he that. the painting in the end we see it through a reflection and all i could say was hello oh i wrote that part down because <laughs> that's a sleepless in seattle and every time i yes. watch it i just think about the parts from sleepless in seattle all those quotes yeah all the quotes and then this time i noticed when they're on the ship the stars in the background are the sleepless in seattle opening and ending no that's how sleepless in seattle got that idea that's the canvas i never noticed it before yeah, Nora Ephron was like, I know what I'm doing. This is one of my favorite films. <laughs> Allow me. I am a genius. And she just took that little detail and I went, oh my God, that's the Sleepless in Seattle background and it's just their sky on the ship. There's so much subtle comedy in this and so much wit. And I feel like this movie isn't given the credit that it deserves because it's quote unquote for women. Do you know what I mean? Like it is such a smart script. And if it wasn't about romance, I feel like men would be more into it. You know what I mean? But they're like, oh, it's a woman's picture. It's about love. I have to say, like, sometimes it is like pulling teeth, trying to get Alan to watch like a romantic comedy or a, just a romance, a straight romance. Mm -hmm. And so last night when I was like, you know, I've, I've got to watch An Affair to Remember for like the 27th time before the podcast with Sarah, he was like, oh, I've never seen it. And I said, well, you're going to watch it with me then. And he, he actually genuinely loved it. Because it's so smart. It's so witty. It's just well written. You can connect with both characters, I think. Yep. And you can argue about the melodramaticness of like her getting injured. But it's also, yeah. a, it's a movie. You know, like there's going to be some form of silliness. <laughs> like we watch Iron Man and stuff like that all the time. So it's like you can handle yeah. a man in an Iron Man suit, but you can't handle potentially the plot point of a woman <laughs> getting hit by a car and becoming paralyzed. Like, come on. So yeah, I think it's just because it's like, I think men are afraid. Meryl Streep talked about this once and I, I really resonated with it. She was on Fresh Air and she was like, I think men have a hard time 
putting themselves in women's shoes in film. So when I'm watching a movie, any movie, I can put myself in anybody's shoes. If I'm watching Tom Cruise jump across a building, I'm, I'm with him. I'm in his shoes, mm-hmm. jumping across that building with him. And she says, I think men have a hard time doing this because they're afraid of being seen as effeminate. They're afraid of like yeah. putting themselves in a woman's shoes. So for them, movies are like, am I falling in love with her or not? It's not like I'm in her shoes. But I always took that away. Because yeah, when I'm watching a movie, I am the protagonist. And I am with that person in their brain, doing what they're doing. And I think it's just so interesting that men are potentially essentially afraid and I, I bet it's changing. Like, I'm sure it is changing with how we think about things and talk about things. But I just thought that was so fascinating. Roles for women, too, I think. You know, they, they haven't always been written in a more deep and nuanced way. And I'm not saying that they never have been, but there, you know, not been a lot of movies like that. Well, I was going to say a lot of times when men do like, like women in films or like strong women in films, it's in films where the woman isn't written necessarily even as a woman. It's written as like what a man thinks a woman should or could be like, or like, Mm -hmm. this is what a strong woman is. It could have been a man's role, but we gendered it to be a woman, but it's like not a feeling role, not a thinking role. It's an action role. And I just find that really fascinating. So men, if you're listening, I'm not talking shit about you. I'm just saying, be aware of this. If you're noticing like, oh, I'm not in the character's shoes, maybe take a second to walk in that character's shoes. See how that feels. We promise we'll support you and we don't think you're lesser for doing it. We actually think that you're better for doing it. Help us smash this damn patriarchy. It helps no one. It doesn't even help you. It does not help you. You think it does, but it does not. You're in a cage. Get out of your masculine cage. Okay, thank you. That was my, (laughs) I was like, they're not even listening to this episode because it's unfair to remember. So I really just had to get it out. Um, Oh, I wanted to hear Alan's experience in general. I mean, I just, I just loved every little scene that I knew was coming up that I knew it would be like somewhat pivotal. I just kept looking over at him to like see his reaction. And I can tell like, I mean, he, I don't think he cried at all. Yeah. Because men don't cry. No, okay. um, no, <laughs> they could, he, though. But, like, you're allowed to, men, just so you know. I know, I know. But you're allowed to. <laughs> but he, he was hooked. He was definitely, like, engaged by the story. And uh, there were certain parts, of course, that he paused, and like, especially with the whole her being paralyzed and, and seeing that at the end. He's like, I don't know why he just didn't tell her. Like, like, why would you withhold that information? And I'm like, well, it's deeper. And, you know, for her, you know, this is not something that she wanted to to show him until she'd be able to walk again. He's like, but she doesn't know if she could walk again. I'm like, I know, I know. But he was really engaged by it. That emulates my like first experience as a young person watching it and being like, this isn't fair. Like, yep. Because you know it's happening. Like, I knew it was always going to happen because of Sleepless in Seattle. But yeah, that's kind of your first, because we're very seasoned with this film. I don't even yes. know how many times I've seen it. I mean, I own it on DVD. We talked about this the other day. <laughs> like, I own this movie. I like this movie. I just hadn't watched it in a while and... God, I really recommend watching it again if you haven't seen it in a while. It hits different Definitely. chords each time, I think. Just just have some Kleenexes by you. Have some Kleenexes by you. You're going to love it. It's a true classic. Definitely a great thing to watch for Valentine's Day for sure. With your pink champagne. With your pink champagne, which I'm now going to buy. Thanks, Christina. It's so good. It's got the perfect comedic elements and everything intertwined. Oh, and I do love how she says trespass. She says it's so weird. She says, she's like, trespass. Thank you for letting us trespass. I love it. Okay. Anything else? Oh, I don't get that guy. The classic button. So they're making fun of this guy, Mr. Hathaway, the whole time on the ship. And Cary Grant always leaves his conversation with him with some sort of like dry remark that confuses him. And they let him have the final say in that one moment. And it's a perfect button. And I love it. Where um, Cary Grant says something snarky, walks away, and they keep the camera on the confused Hathaway. And he goes, I don't get that guy. He was like so mean to him throughout. It's like, okay, well, good. He gets the final word. Oh, it's a great movie. Okay, so now we're at the double feature segment of our show. The very obvious, because we've said it several times, double feature, which let's be real, I might actually do this on Valentine's Day and just pull a double feature of this, is you watch An Affair to Remember with Sleepless in Seattle. They go hand in hand. They are the perfect pair. You watch them together. You could also watch this with the other love affairs. You could watch this mm-hmm. with the 1939 one. I haven't seen the 1994 one. I saw, again, the first 20 minutes, so I don't really have much to go on, but I bet you could watch them in like a three sequence if you wanted. And I feel like this would go really well with a Douglas Sirk movie just because it does have the melodramatic moment of the, you know, being paralyzed, being hit by a car. And it also looks stunning. And Douglas Sirk's films, they show 
women growing, changing, and being strong and independent, and they have like gorgeous, gorgeous colors. So I feel like those are probably your best bets. But like Sleepless in Seattle is the answer. I agree with that answer. Been a while since I've seen that too. Actually, the last time I saw it was at TCM Fest a couple years ago. They had a special conversation with Mark Shaman before the show. And I, oh my again, gosh. I was supposed to see Tarzan and Tarzan was sold out because they were doing, oh my God, nobody's going to care. They were doing a special, <laughs> I don't even care about Tarzan, but there's these two guys that that go to TCM Fest every year and they do a special presentation and their presentations are so good. So I was going to watch that movie just for their presentation. They're like these sound effects guys that like go behind the scenes of so many different aspects of the movie in such a cool way. So my friend Sarah and I, you know Sarah, you watched, you've been at TCM Fest with us. Uh, we usually go to their showings even if it's not a movie that we love. But that one was sold out. So I ran downstairs to go watch Sleepless in Seattle and they let me in. I got one of the tickets. Uh, and I, I got to it. hear this great conversation with Mark Shaman who wrote the music for it. And he had so many good stories. And I just... That is a movie of my childhood. Like that is nostalgic to me yeah. and it's beautiful and fun and smart. It reminds me of like my mom. It's just like a beautiful, I love that yes. movie. It's so um, great. So anyway, this, that was, we did it. This is our show this week. Happy birthday, mom, and happy Valentine's Day, everybody else. And um, thank you so much for coming here, Christina, and being on our show. Thanks for having me, Sarah. It was wonderful. We'll see you next time on Talk Classic to Me. You have been listening to Talk Classic to Me with Sarah Greenfield. That's me. My guest this week was Christina Rickert. They will be featured on our Instagram page. If you enjoyed our show, please introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Talk Classic to Me. Thanks for listening.